This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. Okay. I was in the foot, him, uh, foot, foot huh? excuse me, the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping. Okay. Traveling with him, and that's when traveled 17,000 miles on his vice president. Uh, I didn't quite get that. Can we get a translation? America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the foot, him, uh, foot, foot excuse me, the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping, traveling with him, and that's when traveled 17,000 miles on his vice president. I don't know that for a fact. Oh. Stu does America. Join us at blazetv.com slash stew. The promo code is stew. You'll save 10 bucks off your subscription to Blaze TV. We have the Federalist Jordan Boyd on about the border today. Biden's new approval rating has hit yet another low point. But we start by doing the death of Twitter. You know, I believe it was Elon Musk long, long ago who brought us a piece of knowledge that has remained hard and fast rule of my life since the beginning of time. And here it is. My Twitter is pretty much complete nonsense at this point. You could literally tweet that at any moment, at any time, during any day. It will always be right. It is the ultimate evergreen tweet. And Elon Musk brought it to us. And for that, we thank you. Now, Elon, of course, was going to join the board of uh, the Twitters. He bought over 9% of the company. Uh, He was offered a board seat, kind of a second-class board seat. Uh, And uh, that looked like it was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't. Today, we find out this announcement has come out from Twitter and the CEO. Elon Musk has decided not to join our board. Here's what I can share about what happened. The board and I had many discussions about Elon joining the board and with Elon directly. We were excited to collaborate and clear about the risks. We also believe that having Elon as a fiduciary of the company, where he, like all board members, has to act in the best interests of the company, hmm, and our shareholders was the best path forward. The board offered him a seat. We announced on Tuesday that Elon would be appointed to the board contingent on a background check and formal acceptance. Elon's appointment to the board was become official uh, on April 9th. But Elon shared that same morning that he will no longer be joining the board. I believe this is for the best. Right. He just sure Um, we will and always will value input from our uh, shareholders, whether they are on our board or not. Elon is our biggest shareholder and we will remain open to his input. There will be distractions ahead, but our goals and priorities remain unchanged. The decisions we make and how we execute is in our hands, no one else's. Let's tune out the noise and stay focused on the work and what we're building, which, as Elon Musk had just pointed out, is complete nonsense. I mean, that actually sounds like something that someone would say that there was building something of value in some way, but it's, of course, not. It's just Twitter. So, What is the story here? I think you kind of get a little bit from the statement as to what actually happened there. Elon Musk tweeted immediately afterward an emoji because, as we pointed out earlier, it is complete nonsense. But he was uh, laughing at his little 
screwing with the uh, with the company uh, activities, which is it is, I will say, a bit entertaining at times. Uh, now, one of the reasons there's a couple things here. Why did this all break down? Why isn't this happening now? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, it Elon Musk taking the board seat seems like a move that was specifically designed to block Elon Musk from having too much influence. The company, Twitter, offered this seat not because they love Elon Musk or they want to give their company to this guy that would outshine everything they were trying to do. No, no. They wanted to stop him. And this is how they're planning to do it. Mr. Musk, this is in the agreement, by the way, um, the board seat agreement. Mr. Musk agrees that for so long as Mr. Musk is serving on the board for 90 days thereafter, Mr. Musk will not, either alone or as a member of a group, become the beneficial owner, uh, beneficial owner of more than 14.9% of the company's common stock outstanding at such time, including for these purposes economic exposure through derivative securities, swaps, or hedging transactions. In other words... They could stop him from taking the company over if he was on the board because they limited him to 14.9% of the stock. Now, he's already got over 9%. And remember, that was 9% when he filed the paperwork. Who knows how much he has right at this second? He could have over 14.9% already and on his way to 51% or probably 50.1. I don't know that he'd bother with the last 0.9%. Point being, this was a way from Twitter to stop Elon Musk, who has an unlimited amount of money and can buy their whole company if he feels like it on a random Tuesday, which, by the way, might be tomorrow. Who knows? Um, And also, this is a part of it as well. You, You could get this from the statement. Let me just read you a random tweet here that summarizes one theory about what Elon Musk might be doing. Let me break this down for you. Elon became the largest shareholder for free speech. Elon was told to play nice and not speak freely. That's the breakdown. Why do I bring up that particular tweet? Well, Elon Musk liked it. So pretty indicative as to what he's feeling today. And you read that in the statement as well. I mean, it was, uh, what was it? Um, you could see what they were trying to do. He, he would be appointed to the board contingent on the background check. His appointment was to become official on April, on April 9th, but he said he wouldn't be. Um, why? Well, he has a fiduciary, uh, fiduciary um, uh, responsibility, like all board members, to act in the best interest of the company and all of our shareholders. And, of course, criticism of Twitter might hurt the stock price. And, of course, that would not be perhaps in the best interest of all shareholders. Therefore, uh, Elon Musk might not be able to speak his mind as he wants to. Now, look, is he going for a hostile takeover? I think there's certainly a possibility of it, right? I mean... You know, I don't know. What do you do in this situation? If you have a company like Twitter where there are a bunch of employees who are threatening to leave if Elon Musk gets too much control, if you're Elon Musk, do you want to bother with it? If everyone's going to be leaving and all the, you know, half the people are going to be leaving because they don't like you, well, then what company are you running? It's sort of like, sort of like invading Mariupol, right? Like you knock the whole thing down. What do you have? You know, you just got a bunch of rocks you're overseeing. And that could be one of the risks of taking over the company. On the other hand, Twitter is a big enough brand and it's probably going to be around for a while, uh, despite the fact that it shouldn't be because it should be destroyed. Hopefully that's what Elon Musk does. Actually, my idea for Elon Musk is to buy it and then literally unplug it. So it, it just Twitter.com redirects to, uh, I don't know, Tesla's website. And that's pretty much the end of the story. I don't really care what he does with it. I just hate that it has influence in this country. You know, we were a great nation at one point. There was a guy who once said, make America great again. Shockingly, he said it on Twitter, which is actually the thing making America terrible in so many ways. And look, Twitter is not the whole story. It's indicative of a larger one, one that uh, has 
just has decided to infl- uh, infiltrate our entire society and our brains and make it as if we need to turn them off. We need to no longer use our own brains. We need to stop being this great country, that this incredible civilization that's advanced uh, the world and, and pulled billions of people out of poverty worldwide. And instead, we just sit on Twitter or worse, TikTok and sit around and waste our time accomplishing absolutely nothing. But the truth is, Elon Musk can't save you from Twitter. He can't. Perhaps it's possible to craft some smart legislation that will solve a small percentage of the problems with social media. Right, of course. Far more likely is the chance it makes things worse and it erodes freedom of speech in other areas. Washington politicians are not going to create laws that make multi-billion dollar tech companies less likely to cancel your speech. That's not going to occur. We're not that lucky. Neither will tech executives. They don't want to they don't want to help you either. Even Elon Musk, for all of his positives, is completely nuts on global warming, totally wrong on Bitcoin and the environment, and congratulated the Chinese Communist Party on a hundred years of terrorizing their people. The economic prosperity that China has achieved is truly amazing, especially in infrastructure. I encourage people to visit and see for themselves. You might get your head chopped off while you're there. Sorry about that. Yay! It's amazing the sort of infrastructure gains you can make when you don't mind dropping a few hundred thousand people into the cement. Daddy, why does that bridge have an arm hanging out of it? I don't know, son. Don't look. The only way to save Twitter is to save yourself from Twitter. Hard truth here, but no. You don't have to be on the platform. No, you don't. You don't. You're probably not going to swing an election with your witty comeback to Gretchen Whitmer, whatever the hell her name is. Social media is an unending hellscape that destroys the lives of people who might otherwise do something worthwhile with their time and energies. If we need to have some billionaire pseudo superhero come in to save us from Twitter, then we have too much of our self-worth tied up on Twitter. If the future of our society hangs in the balance of a series of tweets, then the country is already lost. And why would it be worth saving in the first place? And conservatives have to take a step back and recognize the value of their own arguments and policies. Every time someone with moderate fame shows the slightest interest in one of our arguments, we run at them full speed with our tongues panting like a starving puppy. Elon Musk is fine, but I don't think we need to place him into conservative sainthood because he opened up his factory a couple weeks early and wanted the Babylon Bee on Twitter. He's right on those points, yes, but he's wrong on a lot too, and we don't need to deify him. Same goes for someone like Kyrie Irving, the face of the BLM movement and the Flat Earth Society just a few months ago is now some sort of conservative icon. Yeah. He's right about vaccine mandates, and yes, I'd rather have him on my team than LeBron James, but still, let's not all bow and worship any celebrity that gives us a passing glance. That reeks of desperation. Our ideas, our ideas are the ones that made this country into the greatest nation ever conceived. We don't need to be desperate. We just need to be persuasive, virtuous, and intelligent. Just like everything else in this country, all three of those have faced sudden and long-lasting problems with their supply chain. The three-week rule may be the best financial advice ever. 
What is the three-week rule? Well, you wait three weeks to buy that new car. Wait, I, I've been doing this thing really well because I've waited eight months to buy the new car. So I'm way ahead of this. You could wait three weeks to refi your home mortgage. You could wait three weeks to purchase uh, anything that's big that you're going to finance. Why three weeks? Because that's how fast the average ScoreMaster user takes to boost his or her credit score, an average of 61 points. And listen, 61 points add to a big purchase. That's a, that is a savings of thousands, tens of thousands on a home, maybe even $100,000 on a home. ScoreMaster technology was developed by credit data scientists to boost your credit score higher and faster than you thought was possible. They reverse engineered all these things. They know how they work. ScoreMaster is really easy. It takes about a minute to get started, and you don't have to wait months for your best credit score. Try ScoreMaster for free right now. You can see how many plus points you can add to your credit score. Go to scoremaster.com slash stew, scoremaster.com slash stew. Check it out now, scoremaster.com slash stew. And now I will tell the future. The border is going to be a catastrophe over the next couple of months. I know. I nailed it. I'm pretty, uh, pretty good at this sort of stuff. I think over the next couple of months, the border is going to be a pretty big story. And I want to bring in Joy- Jordan Boyd to talk about it. She's a staff writer for The Federalist, co-producer of The Federalist Radio Hour. Her new piece is, no matter if Title 42 stays or goes, a massive migrant influx is coming. I'll tweet out a link to that here in just a second. Jordan, how's it going? Hi, it's going great. Thanks for having me on. Great. Thanks for coming on. Um, Let's start here with the Biden administration before we get to May 23rd, because that's a whole other story. But I think people have lost uh, the plot a little bit here on what has been happening since Joe Biden came into office. From 2021, January of 2021 to today, what has the Biden uh, response looked like and how how are things going so far? Well, the truth is things are not, like you said earlier, going well. Biden inherited the most secure border the nation has ever seen. And over the last year and almost a half, he's done everything he can in his power to dismantle that. And he did a lot of that at the beginning of his term uh, with executive orders and sort of walking back a lot of these security measures that Trump implemented. And more recently, he's trying to rescind Title 42, which the Trump administration implemented as part of sort of a COVID pandemic plan to make sure that illegal migrants were not pouring across an unsecure border, um, you know, infiltrating uh, places where we were trying to keep COVID out. Yeah, it seemed like a pretty sensible policy. It's one now that we seem to think that it's uh, okay to mask three and four year olds uh, in preschools, but we can now open up the borders to let people come across. I don't know if COVID's gone or if it's still here, Um, but let's get to Title 42 here, because the accusation early on with Trump was that it had nothing to do with COVID. He didn't care about COVID. He just didn't want people from Mexico coming across the border. And you know, Biden kind of ran on this idea and said, this is just hateful. This is a xenophobic. And as soon as Joe Biden gets into office, he's going to lift this. But he hasn't lifted a lot, at least Title 42 and a couple of the other things that are associated with it. Why is that? And is he getting a lot of pressure from his side of uh, left wing activists? He absolutely is facing a lot of pressure, and that's part of the reason why he's finally decided to rescind it. You know, I think this kind of played out the politics of the Biden administration really well, because on one hand, you have a really unsecure border, and you have some media attention, especially last summer at the peak of summer migration, where everyone's scrutinizing the Biden administration, and his approval is tanking still to this day. But on the other hand, the only place that he's really been able to hang on to is the pandemic. That's been his saving grace for the last year and a half. So this title 
42 is sort of played out in that way where he's saying, well, you know, we're following what the CDC says and the CDC says we're going to keep this for now. But after facing that left wing activism and a lot of pressure, he is rescinding it. And the truth is, even before he decided to rescind it at the end of May, he's been scaling back deportations based on Title 42 and other measures that have tried to, you know, keep our borders secure and protected. It's interesting because, you know, he is now I think there is some pressure building from the other side and even some, you know, maybe moderate Democrats are saying, wait a minute here. Well, this is going to be a disaster. It's an election year. You're going to toss us to the wolves if you if you open up the border and, and have us go through these elections in this sort of climate. Is there a pushback and is there a possibility that he doesn't rescind Title 42 on May 23rd? There is some pushback, especially from Senate Democrats and ones that, you know, have some leverage from border states like Arizona. So the Biden administration could potentially say, hey, you know what, we're going to wait. We're not going to do this May 23rd. We're going to extend this. But the truth is, is that word about this rescindal has already spread and it's spread among smugglers and other migrant networks, people who, you know, profit off of this illegal immigration industry. So whether Title 42 stays or not, there is going to be a huge influx, especially towards the end of May. And unfortunately, that is also going to coincide with peak migration months where we already see high numbers of illegal border crossings. I mean, last year in April, 1,000 people were crossing the border daily unpursued, and now it's going to be about 8,000. <laughs> it really is incredible. I, you know, people don't realize when you look at the Joe Biden polling, and it's obviously not, not good and hasn't been good and getting worse, but even compared to things like Afghanistan, the border is usually his worst topic. I mean, people don't realize that the border has been a total catastrophe since day one of this administration, and it only looks to be getting worse. Yeah, and it's not just him. I mean, he appointed Kamala Harris as vice president as the borders are, and we saw what happened with that. <laughs> I mean, it took everyone to get her to the border last summer, and now, you know, we haven't heard a peep from her as we're seeing this pressure building, you know, these things getting out of hand. CBP officials are saying, you know what, we're really overwhelmed, and we're not going to be able to handle this. We haven't been able to handle this because open border policies create this disaster. It's just the truth of the matter. You talked to some former uh, high-level border officials for your piece. And they see, you know, all sorts of problems uh, coming uh, in addition to the ones we already have. One of the big issues here is the cartels and the way that they are handling the messaging that's coming out of the Biden administration. Whether this thing stands or not, they've already they've already received uh, a bit of guidance as to what they're going to do. Exactly. I mean, cartels, gangs and other illegal operations, people who profit, like I mentioned earlier, off of this illegal immigration industry, use Biden's lax border policies. They use it to shuttle in illicit drugs and to make money off of, you know, people maybe seeking asylum or not. But either way, these people are crossing the border undetected. And at a time when our nation is in a crisis, I mean, we have nationwide drug overdoses on the rise. A lot of those are fentanyl, which does come across the southern border in large swaths. So this is isn't just an issue for border states. This is an issue for the entire United States and for Biden and the domestic agenda. Yeah, the 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 drug problem is really a, one that does not get a lot of play right now, and it should get more. I mean, the opioid crisis in and of itself is creating such an unimaginable catastrophe. When you look at the 
the levels of, of people dying in the opioid crisis as compared to like the crack epidemic of the 80s, it's not even remotely close. I mean, it's much, much, much worse now. So much of this is coming over the border and is, uh, is, is leaking in through, you know, the situation that we have now before Title 42 goes away. I mean, can states possibly prepare for what might be coming in the next few months? I mean, I think the best way for states to prepare is to say, you know what, we can't rely on the federal government to take care of this because, frankly, they won't. They don't want to. Biden has been very clear from the beginning about how he wants to handle the border. So, you know, states like Texas, I know Governor Greg Abbott has done um, a lot of his own deploying to the border and, and handling that. Ron DeSantis has also enacted some policies that say, you know what, we're not going to keep letting these people in. We're not going to keep letting these, you know, cartels harness the power that we've given them with open borders to exploit and hurt people in the United States. That's just a ridiculous assumption. And this is far bigger than just a national security issue. This is just as the nation's health as a whole. When you talked, Jordan, to to some of these former you know, border officials, they see what's going on on the ground. And, you know, they obviously still have contacts within the within the border patrol. What do they think is coming and, and do they think there's any sign that we're going to do anything about it? I mean, I think, honestly, they're just devastated to see how quickly those policies that they helped create and form and enforce be ravaged and then hurt people in the United States. I think that a lot of their friends who are still working um, in the government on the border are, are understaffed. They're overwhelmed. They don't have the tools they need. And things just keep getting worse. I mean, taking away Title 42 is like taking away the last tool in the toolbox for the United States. It's going to leave everyone depleted and, and hurt. Work with me on the politics of this, though. I, I, I have to say, of all the parts, like, I know the ideology lines up with having a more open border situation. They've talked about this for years. They famously said there's a welcome sign. Uh, come on, come to the border. Uh, I can understand why uh, legal immigrants think that it's OK to come when the president of the United States is on television saying they have a welcome sign. So I get all that. But I don't think I understand why you become president in January of 2021 and you wait all the way until mid-election year 2022 to do this when the impact is going to be fresh in everybody's mind when they go to the polls. Do you have any understanding as to why they're doing this now? I mean, I think part of the issue is that the Biden administration simply hasn't been held accountable on the border for a long time. And they faced sort of slow pressure from these leftist groups to rescind Title 42, but they haven't faced any scrutiny from the corporate media hardly at all about this border crisis. And when you don't have it in the news cycle, um, you know, Americans, frankly, who don't look at conservative news sources aren't going to understand the, the extreme circumstances around the border. So I think, you know, a lot of that fall, a lot of that burden falls on the corporate media for not being able to hold the president accountable. You know, their job is to inform and educate Americans and to ask hard questions. And they simply haven't done that. Yeah, it's a great point. There was that like three week period that I remember all of a sudden when Biden did his first press conference, he was getting these tough questions on the border. They were following up on these questions. These are journalists from like CBS News and NBC News. And then it just went away. I mean, do we think, you know, you can't predict the future, of course, but like, do you think there will be this will be bad enough for the corporate media to have another scattered shower of journalism and step up for a few weeks and at least ask the guy a couple of tough questions? 
I mean, you would hope that they would do their jobs, but frankly, I don't know if I trust the people who spread lies about the border, including the whipping lie. I don't know if you remember that one where they said oh, border yeah. agents were whipping illegal border crossers. I don't trust those people to to stay on top of this issue, to report accurately, to you know communicate to Americans the depravity of the situation and how much the Biden administration has neglected to address it. Well, I think Biden is actually implementing a very long-term strategy here, which is to make America so undesirable to live in that no one will want to cross the border, and then we'll have the whole thing solved. Uh, but that's that's a long-term policy. Uh, Jordan Boyd is the new uh, the new piece is no matter if Title 42 stays or goes, a massive migrant influx is coming. So be sure to give that a read, and I'll put it up uh, on Twitter at World of uh, at Stu Does America. That's the old one. Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the, foot, uh, foot, foot, excuse me, in the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping, traveling with him. I guess we traveled 17,000 miles when I was vice president. I don't know that for a fact. Yeah, neither do I. You don't seem to know many things as facts at all, do you, Mr. President? He's doing really well, though. His approval rating sort of looks like that sentence. Um, it's not very good right now. In fact, the lowest point in the CBS News poll, he's down to 42%. You might say, wait a minute, I remember him at like 39% last week. I think that was a Quinnipiac poll. Maybe it was a couple weeks ago now. Um, you can't compare like a poll from one organization to the poll from another organization. At least, I mean, at least it's hard to. You don't get as much information if you do it that way. You can't say, oh, he's up. Or if next week Quinnipiac comes out and they're at 38%, you'd say, oh, he dropped from 42 to 38 you really can't do it like that. Each organization has some level of internal bias. And I don't even mean that in a, in a negative bias way where we'd say like liberal bias or whatever. It's more of a bias of, of, a, of a polling organization where they might ask the question a slightly different way. They may have a different technical approach. They may very well go through different names, use a certain percentage of cell phones and uh, track some people track on the Internet. You kind of have to compare uh, the same company's polls to their polls to really understand the trends as, as best as you, as you can. And this is the lowest that Biden has received from CBS, which has been generally better than average for Biden. So 42 percent is now a good poll for Joe Biden. He is really outshining any president we've ever seen in history when it comes to failure. And I mean that <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like I'm just throwing that out there. But we've gone through the approval ratings of the presidents. He has been behind every single president um, in history, going back as far as uh, poll opinion polling was even sort of reliable, with the exception of Donald Trump, who started about 20 points behind Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden has been closing that gap the entire time. And at this point, they're basically tied now. Um, Donald Trump had one of the most continuously even approval ratings uh, that of any, I think, probably of any president ever. Uh, the only one that would kind of compare to him w was Barack Obama, who didn't have as many bumps as, as some of the older presidents. But I mean, B Biden or excuse me, uh, Trump was pretty much flat between, say, 38 and 45 percent. He just kind of bounced in that seven point range his entire presidency. Well, Biden started in the high 50s and he's now down in the low 40s and the high 30s. And he's crossed that line or at least is, a, is in the middle of crossing that line with Donald Trump to be the lowest at this point in his presidency, which is pretty amazing. Again, you know. 
look, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are two different animals here. Donald Trump comes in as a a bombastic, uh, divisive guy. He's a big celebrity. He's tweeting all over the place. He's making fun of, you know, uh, 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 Mika Brzezinski's facelift. You know, I mean, like, he's just, you know, this is what he does. So he had turned off a lot of people before he became president, even though a lot of people also loved him. Biden came in with almost no one loving him, and a lot of people okay with him. They were like, ah, eh, he's kind of in the middle. He's not doing all that stuff that we might not have liked about Donald Trump. We didn't like those tweets. We didn't like the, the big, you know, the, uh, the, 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 you know, some of his actions, blah, 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 blah. So we're going to bring in this guy. He's a statesman. We see how well that's worked out, and it's worked out very, very poorly. Now, of course, this, when you have a president that it's tanked like this, you're, the thought process understandably turns to impeachment. How do we get this guy out of there? Now, there's a bunch of problems with impeachment. Number one, of course, you don't have the House or the Senate to do it. So right now it's not it's a non-starter, but it's possible you could get the House and the Senate here coming up in 2022. We'll go over uh, some of these races here in just a second. Again, we did a uh, election preview show last week. You want to go back and look at that one, uh, kind of give you a, a real a real good um, uh, overview of what we're looking at in 2022. Um, but you You have to be careful with that power because sometimes when people see it as something that is just political and just, uh, you know, this whimsical use of power, like the Democrats used it against Trump twice, um, it doesn't it doesn't have an effect. And and at times can bounce back against your party. We saw that a little bit with the Bill Clinton impeachment. Yeah, they got him impeached. He wasn't removed from office. And uh, people wound up kind of going back the other way because the end of that story, unless you got 67 votes in the Senate, the end of the story is acquittal. And that word is pretty powerful to the American people. He was charged with something. He was acquitted of that thing. That's kind of how people look at it. Now, McCarthy uh, is coming out. Kevin McCarthy, uh, he is, of course, uh, the House minority leader. He is saying, look, if we win the House, we, gotta, we can't just impeach this guy for political reasons. And, of course, you shouldn't impeach him for political purposes, though it is a political process. What you should impeach him for is how terrible he is. Now, <laughs> if you were to get him removed, I will warn you that Kamala Harris will become president of the United States. And that is not good, these things are not good. Uh, but at this point, who knows, would it even be, would it be better than Biden? He's that bad. Um, and oh, I should have gone through the individual things, uh, categories, because I, I like to lead with my mistakes. This is why I'm five minutes into this segment and telling me about it right now. Um, but when I was talking to Jordan earlier, I said, you know, the border has been his worst category, even worse than Afghanistan in the polling. And that was true. Not really as true anymore, because Yes, uh, it is uh, even lower than his handling of crime, which is only a 39% approval rating. Uh, Immigration's at 38%, so it is his second lowest category. However, inflation has now passed it, and only 31% approve of Biden's handling of inflation, which is remarkable. I mean, it's like a core economic uh, category that you absolutely cannot lose control of. He's already lost control of it, only 31%. Approved. I love this one. He scored best best on the situation with Russia and Ukraine. Forty five percent approved. Wow. I mean, oh, the riches are just pouring in. 
Let me give you some uh, updates on inflation, and I'm going to tell you a trick the media is going to use on you, and I would like you to be aware of it because it's coming very, very soon. Here is the new chart uh, for uh, inflation. 7.9% was the most recent month. We're about to get a very nasty inflation uh, uh, chart. They are expecting it to go up even higher to 8.4% over the last year. Yes, we can go into how it's calculated and how the details there. The one thing I want to point out to you, though, is this is a year-over-year number. So when you uh, go down this road and you have high inflation, the, once you get to a year of high inflation, it starts comparing it to years where the inflation already existed, not the baseline number. So when you have seven, we're at 7.9 now, in another year, it will be measuring inflation against this higher number. Does this make sense? So basically, these numbers are going to go down. You're going to see it go 7.9, 8.4. I shouldn't say this because who knows with Joe Biden, maybe they'll continue to go up and we'll go to Zimbabwe level uh, inflation. But in theory, if we have a rise in inflation over a year period, we'll get a lot of these splashy numbers in the first year. And then as we get into the second year of this process, it will start coming down and it might look like 6% or 5%. Now it's 5% of a higher number. So it's still really bad and getting worse, but just not worse as at as large a pace. So what the administration will do is say, hey, last year it was 7% and now it's only 5 See, we're getting it under control. But that won't be true. Uh, it will be yet another piece of their spin. Maybe we'll go through this a little bit more detail when we have a, a little bit more time. I will say this is, uh, remember the high point of the poll for Joe Biden, his handling of Russia and Ukraine. Now, Russia has defaulted on their foreign debt. This is a thing that has happened now. It was a big warning early on. Obviously, like this is the intent of these policies, right, to get Russia into this really bad economic space so that they hopefully uh, can't fund the war or stop the war because they don't want to bad, batter their economy anymore. Now, once you're down the road this far, it's hard to imagine them reacting to a new piece of sanctions or anything like this. And uh, they, their balance sheet actually looks great because they can't spend any of their money. So they can't have any of their money leaving the country. It's all staying inside the country. They can't buy goods from outside of their borders, yet they're still selling gas to comp- uh, countries like Germany. So the money, not a, all of it, but a lot of the money is still coming in for energy, and they can't spend it outside their borders, so their balance sheet looks really healthy. Now, this isn't everlasting. These, are, these sanctions are having a negative effect on their economy. But, uh, and as proved with this default, which is a really big deal. I mean, you know, every time there's a government shutdown in Washington, some politician runs out and they say, well, the Republicans are trying to stop uh, our budget and they want us to default and that would be the worst thing ever and our country would collapse. Well, that's happened now in Russia. They have defaulted on their foreign debt. It is a big deal. And what they're doing to some of these areas in Ukraine, and we're seeing uh, some of the fallout from that, you know, look, is, uh, it's, it's unbelievable that it's happening, honestly, in 2022. You kind of hoped that we were beyond this sort of stuff. does not seem that we are. I guess human beings will never progress to perfection, as uh, some have speculated in the past. Uh, but their default is very, very ugly. They've gone down the road even further with the, elect, uh, with the problems with their economy. But I will remind you that Vladimir Putin still has an approval rating that's like 40 points ahead of Joe Biden. 
So this guy has gone in, he's invaded other countries, he's murdered untold amount of civilians on the side of the road, he's bombing hospitals and train stations and leaving bodies all over the, all over the street, uh, and his country's in default, his economy is going, all, uh, going to crap, none of his people can travel outside of their borders, and he's still beating Joe Biden by 40 points. That's the state of your country, America. NPR has a list of the top 10 Senate races that are most likely to flip to the other party. And I want to go through some of these, mainly because they just stole them from our show. This is the exact same 10 races I told you about last week. But I want to go through them a little bit here. (laughs) I don't think they actually stole them. Uh, And if they did, I'd have to change my programming. If they wanted my programming on NPR, I'd have to change the show. Uh, Number 10 is Colorado. Um, That's with uh, Bennett. We talked about it a little bit. I think this is a bit of a long shot, but... In a wave election, Republicans could pull off Colorado. Uh, number nine is Rubio in Florida. Look, Rubio should have no problem winning this race. In this environment, again, there's that, that sort of setting of the climate. What, what's the, if you like horse uh, racing, is it a fast track? Is it a sloppy track? When you set that sort of climate and you realize who, which side it favors, a candidate like Rubio should have no problem here. You've got a, a strong Ron DeSantis on the ticket above him. You've got the Senate race uh, with Rubio. It looks like he's going to be going. And do we have the, uh, I don't even know if, if they're, uh, they're talking about um, Val Demings. I mean, you know, look, Rubio should beat Val Demings without even thinking about it. Um, uh, Ohio is an open race. This is a big one because... There's a basically a five-way race for the Republican nomination that's going to go through a primary. Who knows who's going to win that? That's the one J.D. Vance is in and, and Seth Mandel and, and a few others who are competitive. There's a bunch of people who are high single digits in this race, too, which makes for all sorts of chaos that's possible. But again, this is the type of race that Republicans in this environment should have no problem winning unless they pick a terrible candidate. Uh, North Carolina is an open seat as well. Uh, That's one, again, Republicans should be able to hold on to in this environment, but we will see as we get closer. New Hampshire is an interesting one. Normally, I would say a purplish state, but leaning a little blue, right? I, I feel like when we go into a normal presidential election, I don't really think... Republicans are going to win New Hampshire, though it's always on the board of potential toss-ups or leaners. Uh, This time, Maggie Hassan isn't super strong for the Democrats there. It's a winnable race for Republicans. Um, It's going to be an interesting one, honestly. This is going to be one of those uh, that that could happen. The governor, um, Chris Sununu, declined to run, and people thought that if he ran, he'd he'd be a a heavy favorite. Decided not to, so that race is still up in the air. Uh, Kelly in Arizona is their number five race. Kelly has only been on, you know, he's only been a senator for a couple of years. I don't think that he's distinguished himself really in any way. Kirsten Cinema has. She's shown an independent streak. She's stood up for uh, against some of the wilder programs on the left. Really, I will say, and as you know, I usually get everything right, every single thing right when it comes to elections. Uh, as you know, the exact count for the electoral vote. Told to you on this program the day before the election. We said it was going to be, what was it, 306 to 232? And uh, it was. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I normally get all of these things perfectly correct. 
Kirsten Cinema, honestly, I thought was going to be a lot worse than she's been so far. So, I, uh, look, I hope to be pleasantly surprised by her going forward. Kelly, on the other hand, has been kind of just replacement level Democrat. And replacement level Democrat in a, uh, in a situation where Republicans are going to be heavily favored. Arizona, normally a state that le- leans a little bit red uh, in a somewhat big uh, wave year for um, Democrats in 2020, uh, they, they pulled it out by the slightest of margins, as you know. Uh, but this is going to be a tough one for them to hold on to. Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. Again, Wisconsin's one of those states that I would have considered probably three or four election cycles to be a blue state. It's now clearly a purple state. Uh, I, Trump, I think, was really responsible for bringing a new uh, contingency of voters uh, out. And now that state is really, really competitive. Ron Johnson connects pretty well uh, with both the traditional conservative crowd and sort of the MAGA crowd. He's kind of in that little sweet spot in between. I think has a good chance of winning this race, uh, but it's possible he could lose it. Um, uh, Cortez Masto in Nevada is the number three race. That's a Democrat. Uh, hopefully Republicans can take that one. It's another purple state. You know, maybe it tends to, to go a little bit more blue than red, but it's it's in the purple regions. And, you know, again, Cortez Masto, replacement level. Like, uh, no no distinction uh, from her. She's just a, D, a check in the box for a D. And those types of candidates can be vulnerable in these types of elections, uh, even in a state that might be a little more blue. Georgia's an interesting one, and this is one maybe we'll get into a little bit more uh, as we go on later this week. Um, Raphael Warnock is a terrible candidate, especially for Georgia. I mean, if he were the candidate, you know, from New York, you know, you'd say, all right, I guess. But to be a Democrat from Georgia that is this crazy is really remarkable. Uh, he is going up against most likely, and not entirely decided yet, but most likely Herschel Walker. He's, of course, the uh, former, I think he played for a, a terrible team in Texas, but also the Philadelphia Eagles. And he, uh, <laughs> in the good years. Um, so uh, Walker, though, and, and we like Herschel Walker. He's been uh, on the show. Um, he has, uh, he's been in studio a few times. It seems like he's a really good, honest guy who has dealt with all sorts of crazy stuff in his life and has battled through it and is now going to try to become a senator in Georgia, where, of course, he was a quite possibly the greatest college football player of all time. I mean, arguably, uh, and certainly had, I believe, maybe the greatest single football season in any professional uh, league when he uh, was in the USFL uh, and ran for God only, it was like 2,500 yards in one season. Um, Really a remarkable, remarkable year. Um, All that being said, they are going to come after him with every little thing that has gone on in his life and his history. So he's going to face a, if he thinks he had a lot of pressure, uh, uh, you know, uh, playing football, he's, he knows, I mean, he knows this is coming, but it's going to be nonstop. They're going to try to sink his candidacy. Um, So that's one that a normal replacement level Republican probably wins. You could see Walker winning it by even more, or you could see him potentially losing it. He's he's a candidate with a lot of variance there. We don't know how he's going to handle this pressure. We will see. And the number one race is Pennsylvania. Big news out of there uh, this weekend as Dr. Oz got the uh, 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 got the endorsement of President Trump. An interesting race. He's facing off against a guy who went to West Point and was, uh, you know, big CEO of the biggest hedge fund in the world, very highly accomplished. Um, Dr. Oz, you know who he is, right? He's a guy who's on Oprah and uh, he's been doing his own show for a long time. Uh, He would be the first Muslim senator, uh, which is uh, something that I'm sure the 
media is going to go crazy in support of. They love those big announcements like that. And, uh, you know, Mehmet Oz, uh, they're going to be very thrilled to endorse. Now that Donald Trump's on board, I don't know which way they go. Do they go against the first Muslim uh, senator or do they go with Donald Trump? I've got news for you. It's going to be uh, they're going to go against the first Muslim senator in that race. However, no, there's a lot of pushback against this endorsement. I mean, you know, there's not a ton of evidence that Dr. Oz is really a conservative. I mean, he's he's a big celebrity, but not necessarily uh, conservative, was really tight with the Obamas and the Clintons. And so a lot of that's appearing in ads. We'll get into that race maybe a little bit more. Maybe that might be worth a full monologue uh, later in the week. Um, we'll get into that race as well. But that's your uh, your top 10 uh, races for the Senate this season. We'll be back in just a minute. Kim Jong-un does not subscribe to this podcast. Prove you are not Kim Jong-un by subscribing right now. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. If you can rate and review, we would appreciate it. Listen daily, which is less time spent on other podcasts, which is, of course, the goal. Well done, you. On YouTube, you can comment all the time. Great job, Stu, and everyone involved in bringing us your content. You guys never fail to be entertaining and informative. Thank you. Watching Veep Thoughts, I nominate Stu to bring back the great David Letterman skit called Great Moments in Presidential Speeches. There's a plenty of those lately. Really? The KBJ song followed by Veep Thoughts? I ran out of duct tape. I'm sorry to torture you. I shouldn't have done that to you. By the way, veepthoughts.com. Veepthoughts.com if you want to check them all out in one place. 